God's word says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, I will, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. All the time, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I'll bring distress on mankind so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Gather together. Yes, gather together, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden from the, on the day of the anger of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, your word is living and active. Lord, your word accomplishes its desire. And may you, through the preaching of your word, be honored. May you give us a greater vision of who you are, more delight, more awe, and more humility. May we see you, not just in your terror, but also in your love on the cross. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may have heard of the mom who was having a bit of a frazzled and hairy day as she was getting ready to have 
guest over for lunch. She ran around, did this, did that, tried to have everything ready by the time she said they should come over. Well, then they showed up, and with a rush, she hid this item there, covered this item there, and then rushed to the door and took a deep breath, smiled, opened it, and, oh, so good to see you. She welcomed everyone in, had the meal, and she was still a little frazzled inside, and so she said to her young daughter, hey, would you pray for the meal? And the daughter said, well, I don't know what to pray. And she goes, just pray what you hear mommy pray. And she goes, oh, I can do that. Lord, why did they have to come today? (laughs) The secret was out. Everything looked fine on the outside, but everything wasn't. She wanted it to be concealed, a secret that it was a frazzled day, but now all the skeletons were out of the closet. Everything was out in the open. Everything that she wanted to keep hidden away. Does God have skeletons in his closet? Some things that should stay hidden away because he and maybe we are a little shamed that they might come out in the open. We're beginning the series in the book of Zephaniah and some of what I just read is kind of shameful to many. It's a view of God that, well, that doesn't really fit with modern thinking You know, those are good ideas, I guess, for like Puritans, people who wore wigs and preached, but not today. God can't be like that. And if you're a believer, you might find those ideas that I read embarrassing. You know, I wish we could like go back to the New Testament where we were a couple weeks ago. Why would we read this? Like the mother, you wish, could we just kind of keep this out of sight? Let's not, let's not bring that up. And though most view this depiction of God even as wrong, To be explained or shameful, I hope to show this morning that it's not a skeleton, but a foundational and even encouraging truth about God that declares who He is. So to understand this, if you look at your bulletin, you can see the outline. First, we're going to try and figure out who is this Zephaniah? Where is he coming from? Then, first five verses after that, verses 2 through 6, God's coming judgment. And then, verses 7 through 18, God's day is coming. And then... The beginning of chapter 3, chapter 2, sorry, first three verses, God's way of hope. Well, the first, the context, you may remember in school or learning in school to ask context clues. Questions like who, what, when, where, how, what's going on? Well, let's answer those. Who? Who is Zephaniah? He's a prophet here, and he lists the longest genealogy of any of the prophets. He not only tells his father, which most of the other prophets do, His grandfather, which only one other prophet does, but he also tells his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather, both of whom no other prophet mentions. Well, why is Zephaniah going into all this detail? And it's most likely because he is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was the last good king before Josiah, the king he is now prophesying during his reign. And he is wanting them to know that, hey, I'm, the, I'm in the lineage of King Hezekiah, the king who brought reforms, the king who was able to keep us away from the siege when Assyria came. And, hey, look, I want the good of the nation. I'm not saying these things to be harsh, but I want you to hear these things for your good. It'd be like if the great-great-grandson of George Washington was speaking, and he was speaking, warning the nation of something. People go, oh, he's General Washington's son. He must be saying this for our good. So who is this? It's Zephaniah the prophet, the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. Well, what? 
Well, it says in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Now, this is not Zephaniah's insights. These are not his opinions. These are not his tips on living. This is God speaking through the prophet to the people. Well, when? It tells us, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, we don't know when in his 30-year reign, 31-year reign, but we know that since Hezekiah, there has not been a good king since until Josiah. And Josiah, like Hezekiah, is going to make reforms. He's going to call the people to repentance. Now, it could be that Zephaniah is part with Josiah calling people to repentance. Or it could be he is before or after. We're really not sure. But we know that Zephaniah was a contemporary of some of the other prophets. Jeremiah, Nahum, Habakkuk. But Zephaniah is the last prophet to call the people to repentance before the nation of Judah is conquered and taken into exile. I say the nation of Judah because you may remember from the Old Testament that the nation of Israel split. Ten northern tribes went north, became the nation of Israel, and two tribes stayed in the south with the nation of Judah. Well, almost 100 years before this, in 722 B.C., the nation of Israel in the north was conquered, destroyed, taken into exile. The nation of Judah has continued, and now Zephaniah, almost 100 years later, is warning them that the same thing might happen to them. So we've looked at who, what, and when. Well, where? Well, it tells us. In Judah, in Jerusalem, where the capital is in hell, well, God spoke through him. You know, we're not always told how this happened, but we know that God did speak through their personalities and times. In fact, the prophets are one of the main ways we know God's word is God's word. You can look at the things they said, know when they are written, and then go, these things happened 100 years later. How could they predict that? Well, because God was the one telling them their prophecies came true. Only God can consistently, repeatedly, and faithfully foretell the future. But you might be wondering, why would we study this? You know, this is the Old Testament. Shouldn't we focus on Jesus, His message, and who He is? And the answer is, yes, we should. But when Jesus was resurrected, He was walking with His disciples, and in Luke 24, 27, Jesus was talking to them, and it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So if we want to know about Jesus and his message, we should look at the whole Bible. As has often be said, has been said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. It's the same message just told on different sides of the cross. So this is, though it's not an easy book, I'll admit that up front, it's an important book because it reminds us of who Jesus is. You know, there are essential vitamins and minerals that our bodies need to grow. And if you don't eat them, you'll be stunted in your growth. You know, a consistent diet of pizza and milkshakes may taste wonderful at the moment. You may love every single meal, but the long-term results are not going to be something that will lead to you being properly formed. Well, in our spiritual life, there are passages and truths of God's words that at the time, at the moment, may not taste as good as some of the other ones. But in the long run, if we don't eat on them and digest them, we won't be formed spiritually as we should. 
As J.C. Ryle said, we need the whole Bible to be a whole Christian. Also, what is the message here? Well, we turn to that now in verses 2 through 6, God's coming judgment. And there really wastes no time. He says who he is and gets right to it. Verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. It was I mower yard, or probably more accurately as Caleb mows our yard. The mower blows debris, grass, on the driveway. And we don't like it to stay there, so we get out the broom, or if I'm really energetic, the blower, and we sweep it away as far as we can. We don't want it. Well, God is going to come and not sweep away a driveway. He's going to sweep away the earth. And you may have noticed verse 3 is a reverse of creation. In creation, the order was that he made the see if I, yeah, the fish, then the birds, then the beast, and man. Here it's reversed. He's going to destroy the man, and then the beast, and then the fish, the birds, and the fish. Creation is being reversed by his judgment here. And though he says this is going to be on all the earth, he focuses on the nation of Judah and the capital Jerusalem. Well, why? Well, because though they worship Yahweh, their name for God in the Old Testament, they also worship other gods. We see that because it says they have a remnant of Baal. They have idolatrous priests in verses 4. Verse 5, they are bowing down to the host of heaven. James Boyce tells of this Irish folk song. There was an old woman in Wexford. In Wexford town did she dwell. She loved her husband dearly but another man twice as well. And that's what's going on here. Yes, we love the Lord. We love Yahweh. And these other gods, they love Him, but they love their money much more. We love God, but we love our popularity and our possessions twice as well. We love God, but if we're honest, there's other things we love just as much. And God makes clear that He's jealous for you and me to love him and him alone you know we have a hard time with that concept because when we hear of jealous love we think of someone who's insecure someone who's insane possibly they're possessive but god's jealous love is a good thing let's think of a couple contexts can you be a good soldier if you're faithful 364 days out of the year are you a loving spouse? If you come home to your spouse 364 days a year, only one day a year do I go to another woman or man, depending. Well, no. You're like, no, I want all of your devotion as a soldier. You can't fight for the enemy one day. As a spouse, I want all of your love. And that's good. We would be upset with soldiers who took a day off to fight for the other side. Or a spouse who, it's just one day. I mean, that's not even 1% out of 365. How much more the God of the universe wants 100% of you, not 99.9. Definitely not 50-50. And God's jealous love is for our good because He is wanting us to focus on what's best for us. Him. We are, he is the best gift that we can have. However, as is often the case, God is on our lips while our heart is far from Him. That's why in verse 6 it says, They've turned back from following the Lord. They don't seek or inquire of Him. You know, if God's only on your lips, it's eventually going to lead to seeking after other things, inquiring after other 
gods. Now notice something here. This is something that they didn't do. They're not seeking after God. You know, often when we think of sin, we think of things we do or commit. We call those sins of commission. But sin can also be the good things that we should do and we don't do or we omit. Those are called the sins of omission. And God wants us not just to avoid sin. He actively tells us to be pursuing righteousness, to be pursuing Him. O. Palmer Robertson writes, Worshiping God requires a conscious and directed effort. This intensity in devotion cannot be regarded as an option reserved for a pious minority. Failure to seek after the Lord is a sin which shall bring an exterminating judgment. So does this describe you? Do you seek after God in Him alone? Or is your love divided? Do you keep quiet about your faith in front of friends because you value their approval more than the approval of your God? Do you long for your comforts, your hobbies, your relationships more than God? Well, God's going to bring several indictments against Israel, but it's interesting that He begins with their worship because our worship is the fountain from which the rest of our life flows. Now, if our life is rightly aligned and oriented with God, the rest of life falls in place. You know, some of you all have served in the Air Force and some of you have been a pilot. You know, if you're only one degree off, that's one big degree. That's going to put you in a place where there's no runway for you to land. You've got to be perfectly aligned to your destination. In the, the plane of our life, we need to be perfectly aligned, seeking directly for the Lord. Because if not, we're going to end up where there's no runway. And thus God begins with worship because our life should be directed towards Him. So who or what do you worship? And I don't mean, and God doesn't mean, what religious box do you check? Okay, well, you know, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not an atheist. Oh, I'm a Christian. Or I don't mean, what type of religious place would you show up to on a day of worship? But what in your heart of hearts makes you say that is what life is about? What drives you? What, when you're free to think about anything that you could think about, does your mind go to? Well, that is what we worship. Where do you turn with your joys and sorrows? That is what we worship. You know, often the biggest worship we have is ourselves. And we are more and more not even trying to hide that. You may remember a few years ago when Lady Gaga was interviewed and she said, I'm teaching people to worship themselves. Her message, she said, is quite simple and perfectly Christ-like. Love yourself and love others. Except that isn't Christ's message. Christ's message is not love yourself and love others. It's love God and love others. You know, we can show up in Christian buildings. We can gather with Christians and yet twist the words so that really we're worshiping ourselves. You know, we still say we believe the same things. We still recite the same confessions, sing the same hymns. But inside, it's all directed to me and not to him. And when we act and think in that way, God declares both to the people through Zephaniah and to us today 
that we've rebelled and we are deserving of his judgment. And he expands on that more by talking about his coming day in verses 7 through 18. The third section, God's coming day. Now, how do you hear that? God's coming. Is that bring joy, delight, apathy, fear, some other emotion? As I noted, some of you all have served in the military, and sometimes either you or your spouse has had to be deployed. What was the day of return like? Was it a day of excitement? Anxiety. I haven't seen them in a few months. Dread. Ugh. Giddiness. They're back. What was that day like? They're coming back. We can put it. Yeah, they're coming. Well, interestingly, verse 7, they tell them to be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. They should respond to God's coming with silence. One great thing about going to Texas A&M University was going to the football games. There, at least when I was there, 86,000 people would crowd in and yell and holler for our team to win. However, there is more than once an eerie silence that fell over the stadium during a game. The music was turned off, the crowd hushed, and you were amazed at how quiet 86,000 people could be. The stadium would drop to silence when a player was seriously hurt. The roar of the game, the roar of life came to a screeching halt when we realized that person's life, their safety is more important than who has the bigger score at the end of the game. Life came to a halt and we realized what really matters. Well, before the day of the Lord, we should come to a screeching halt and be silent and go, this is what matters. I should be silent before Him. And there are times when we should come before God in silence. You know, Consider the reality that you were made by Him. He's holy. He's just. He's loving. And we often only focus on His love and we forget that He's also a judge as well. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I didn't have the pleasure, if you can call it that, of going to boot camp. But I could imagine that if you knew the drill sergeant was about to march in, and your bunk was unmade, your uniform unkempt, and your boots unpolished, you weren't going, ha ha, all right, come on in. The moment of judgment is here. He's at the door and... I'm not ready. I'm going to have to give an account. What can I say to him? Nothing. I'm going to be silent. So we must pause and ponder and reflect. Put our hands to our mouth and our face to the ground. God is not only our friend, which is amazingly true through Christ, but he's also our creator and king. And we should not treat our sins lightly. Well, here they should be silent as well because God has prepared a sacrifice, it says in verses 7 and 8, and He's consecrated the guest. Now there's a little irony here. This is language of the covenants where God would initiate them with a meal and they would come celebrating, hey, we're having a peace treaty. But now they're being called back to the meal and they realize they've broken their end of the treaty. This will be a day of punishment, not of celebration. 
Well, some of the things that are then said in 8, 9, and 10 are a little lost in cultural translation, but we read some things in here. People are dressed in foreign attire. Somehow the government leaders are dressing in a way that is unpleasing. Maybe it's showing their lack of trust, maybe trying to win appeasement with other nations. Verse 9, they leap over the threshold. We're not real sure what that means. It could be referring to a superstition for the Philistines' gods, Dagon, where they wouldn't step on the threshold. They would step over it. And yet the irony here is that they're being more fastidious to keep a pagan superstition than to keep God's law. Because we see, because in verse 9, they are filling their master, that's God's house, with violence and fraud. It's like people today who won't walk under a ladder, but have no concern as they walk away from God. They always knock on wood, but they don't repent of their sins and confess. They read their horoscopes and their finances daily, but their word of God is just sitting there collecting dust. You know, they're doing all these superstitious things, all these other gods, and yet the one God, eh, no big deal. They're neglecting that. And this is really tying back to verses 5 and 6, because they worship God with their lips, but really they're seeking after other things. And God declares that His coming judgment is due to their and our hypocrisy. Well, verse 7, God told them to be silent. Now verse 11, He tells them to wail. You know, the destruction's going to be so bad that basically no one will even live there. There won't be merchants. There will be no traders. There won't be those who weigh out the silver. Those who do the money exchanging. And this is going to be a thorough search. Verse 12, He's going to break out the floodlights. He's going to make sure that every nook and cranny of the city and of their lives comes under His judgment. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. You may think, no one knows what I did. No one knows what I think. However, God sees and knows. He's broken out the floodlights to shine in our lives, in our cities. And we'll have to give account for every single part. But God mentions then that this judgment will fall on those who are complacent, who say God will neither do good nor ill. Now, complacent is really kind of a translation, an interpretation, because it's literally upon those who conceal upon the dregs. What the image is, is of some kind of fluid, some kind of drink, in this case wine, where the sediment has gone down to the bottom and it hasn't been stirred and it's starting to coagulate and congeal. and ugh. It's just sitting there doing nothing. And then these people who are sitting there doing nothing, neither good nor ill, and then they project that on God. Eh, God's not going to do anything. He's not going to do any good. He's not going to do any ill. Yeah, I mean, Israel was punished 100 years ago, but someone's always going to be on the throne of David. We're safe. He's not going to do anything. And a more accurate depiction of Americans' view of God could not be given. Sure, God exists, but He's not going to judge us. I mean, God's not like that. He's not going to do good or ill. You know, we have to be the change, we tell ourselves. We have to do everything. God's not going to do anything. It's those who are complacent, who are not moving, that He is condemning. Are you uninvolved in God's work? Indifferent to His way, skeptical about life, maybe even justice. You know, we 
talk in the past tense. Well, I, I used to memorize scripture. I used to gather to pray, study God's word with others. I used to take the children, but now that they're gone, I don't really go to church anymore. I, I used to, used to, used to. Or I plan to, plan to, plan to. And we sit at the bottom of the casket. and We congeal and we become complacent. G.A. Smith writes, The great causes of God and humanity are not defeated by the hot assaults of the devil, but by the slow, crushing, glacier-like mass of thousands and thousands of indifferent nobodies. God's causes are never destroyed by being blown up, but by being set upon. God will and has done good and ill. What is your response well, he goes on in verse 13 and tells them that he'll punish them by letting their possessions be looted. And really, all the hard work that they've done, they're not going to get any enjoyment. The houses they built, they won't dwell in. The vineyards they put on, they won't get to drink the wine of. And this should really cause them to remember, hey, this is what happened to Israel in the north. That could happen to us. And so they must take action because the day of the Lord, verse 14 says, is near, near and hastening fast. And then seven descriptions are given of this day. First, it's a day of bitter distress when even the mighty warrior will cry. You know, the images of a warrior, one who's gone through many battles, who's seen the grotesqueness and the horror of a battlefield. And yet when he sees this day, even he, that hardened warrior goes, oh, this is horrendous. It's a day of wrath. It's a day of emotional distress and anguish, it says, a day of physical ruin and devastation. It's a day when the weather is changed to darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. A day when there can be no defense. Verse 16, the fortified city, the trumpets, the lofty battlements, they won't help on this day. It'll be so bad, verse 17, that they'll walk around like they're blind. The carnage will be so great that their blood will be as common as dust. Their entrails will be as valuable as dung. Now, this is not God being capricious. It's not Him having a temper tantrum. It tells us why this happens. Verse 17, because they have sinned against the Lord. This is God's appropriate response as the just judge of the universe. And on that day, He tells them in verse 18, their money is not going to help one bit. You have various times they had had enemies come, and they're able to give them money, to give them what is called tribute. Here, we'll give you this money if you won't invade us. Okay, and they'll go away. But in this time, no amount of money will help. Because it's not a foreign nation. It is God Himself. No money, no possession, no relationship with a human will stop God from coming in His wrath and jealousy. And yet I know some of us have a bit of a problem with this view of God, or if you don't, you know relatives who would go, wow, I don't, that is just, why would you say stuff like that? That is horrible. We want to say God is love. That's all. God is just love. All right. Well, let's ask a question. How do we know God loves us? You know, in a relationship, you know someone loves you when they make sacrifices for you, when they do things for you. The they don't enjoy. If all their love is a statement and then they have to make a sacrifice and 
They don't answer their phone. They don't call back. You know, they don't really love me. They're just around me when it helps them. You know, we may not like the idea of God's wrath and only one of God's love, but it's as we see His wrath that we see His love. You know, 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is love that He's the propitiation. What's that mean? It means sacrifice of atonement. That didn't help. That means a removal of wrath. In this is love that He removed wrath. God could have let each one of us go take the punishment we deserve. But we know He loves us because He took this wrath on Himself. If God's not a God of wrath and doesn't take that upon Himself, then He's a little bit like the precious moment stalls. You know, they're cute. Oh, look at the little angels. Oh, they're wonderful. No precious moments God ever makes you take up your cross and follow Him. It never makes you bow down and worship and say, this is a being that deserves my whole life. Only a God of wrath and love deserves my life, my all. And so we know God loves us, not just that we hope He loves us and want God to be loving, we know God loves us because He didn't arbitrarily just, oh, well, I'm not I'm Old Testament, yeah, but I've changed. No. He poured out His wrath on Himself, on His Son. And the truth is that really any loving person, not just God, any loving person is filled with wrath. Becky Piper writes, Think how you feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. She continues, If I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but His settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race He loves with His whole being. So there really is no choice. If you take away God's justice, His judgment, and His wrath, then you undercut any meaning to His love. It's just mere sentimentality. God is wrath because God is love. And God showed His love again by delivering us through His just wrath by sending that punishment, the propitiation on His Son. Now there's another issue tied into this, and that is that we just honestly don't think we're that bad. I mean, this is kind of an over the top response by God. James Boyce writes about a man who once said, I've spent the best years of my life giving people all the lighter pleasures and all I get is abuse, the existence of a hunted man. And the speaker was Al Capone, one of the most vicious gangsters of the Chicago gangland area. I'm not that bad. I knew a man in Columbus, Ohio, and we lived there. He ran an illegal gambling business. But we keep the streets clean around our facility, and we were, we were improving the neighborhood. You know, we can all find a way to excuse, to rationalize. So, you know, 
these other people are really bad. I'm not like them or, you know, I'm doing this good thing. And that good thing kind of outweighs this bad thing. We're not that bad. Yet we all have skeletons in our closet. Things we've done, said, or thought that we don't want anyone to find out. Now, if we'd be ashamed or embarrassed for another human to find those things out, then why do we think the just and perfectly holy God of the universe is just going to go, eh, no big deal. (laughs) What's that? The standard is not me versus you or me versus them. The standard is me versus God. And before God, I fall woefully short. So are you ready to stand before Him? Are you ready for God's day? I enjoyed being a high school math teacher, but there's one thing I hated, it's not too strong a word, and that was fire drills. And the worst was when they would let me know beforehand it was coming. I don't want to know, because in every period, every class, I'd be waiting for that alarm to go off, or drill, and up. There we go, and I would jump like I did every other time. I knew it was coming, but I wasn't prepared. And many people treat God's day that way. They know it's coming, but they're not ready. They're nervous, they're anxious, but they don't do anything about it. Well, God then tells them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, how to get ready. God's way of hope, the last section Though all may seem to be a loss, God tells them to gather together as the nation, it says in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now this is not a gathering so they can show off their greatness, but rather he describes them as a shameless nation. You know, this language shows God's negative view of them in two ways. First, they're without shame. They no longer even blush at sin. That's how far they have gone. Second, he calls them a nation rather than his people. You know, their personal relationship with God has moved to the background. So in verse 2, God tells them to gather quickly before His anger comes. Notice the before, before, before. They need to hurry up and prepare themselves before this happens. So verse 3 tells them what to do. Seek God. Well, this is kind of interesting because in verse 6, the description of their sin was that they didn't seek God. And yet now... He's telling them to seek him. This is like the robbers chasing the police. I don't want to chase you. You're the one who's upset. But yet, the way we have hope is to pursue God. O. Palmer Robertson again writes, The only adequate refuge from the consuming wrath of Yahweh must be found in Yahweh himself. So the prophet informs the people they must seek Yahweh. Seek God. And in seeking him, they, says in the middle of verse 3, seek righteousness. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You can't be genuinely seeking after God while unrepentantly and joyfully delving in sin. As well, in seeking God, they must seek humility. You have the mindset that nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to his cross I cling. The realization that my hope is not my goodness, My hope is God's grace. And so the verse ends, perhaps they might be concealed from God's anger. Perhaps? Shouldn't this be a promise? Well, what he's saying as the last prophet before the exile is, it is too late now. 
God's day of judgment will not be turned away. However, perhaps on that day, you can be kept safe. So for us, God's day of judgment is coming. But on that day, you may be kept safe. You see, God's anger and wrath is not the whole story of His character. There's hope. There's deliverance. Look over in chapter 3, verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame. In the same book, look, there's hope. That day doesn't only have to be wrath. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Now, historically, we know Judah was judged. 587 B.C. They were conquered. They were sieged. They were taken into exile. The day of God's wrath came, and yet this was only a partial fulfillment. Because Jesus warns, as Keith read for us earlier, that He will come again. Another day of judgment. And God is still just. And He's still holy. And He will sweep away sin and those who do it. Just like Judah was forewarned and then faced the judgment, so will we. Are you ready for God to come? Here are the facts. You were made by Him. We can hem and haul, we can compare ourselves, we can rationalize, but we all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Are you ready? Tom Rainer writes, Do you know the name Harry Truman? Let me be clear. Do you know the name Harry Randall Truman? Not the former president. He was a homeowner at the foot of Mount St. Helens in Washington State. In 1980, the volcanic mountain was showing signs of a major eruption. Indeed, one expert declared that the chance of a major eruption was virtually 100% certain. Truman was living in the most likely path of the volcanic flow. Government officials implored him to leave. Friends told him that this failure to move was tantamount to suicide. Family members begged him to leave lest he die. On May 18, 1980, the massive eruption took place. The lava flowed right on the projected path onto Truman's house. On May 18, 1980, Harry Truman died. He was forewarned. Everyone told him, this is what's going to happen. There's a way of escape. Nope, I'm going to stay here. God will come in judgment. But that's not his only message. There's hope. There's deliverance. You consider again verses 15 through 16, the days of God's coming. It's a day of wrath, a day of emotional distress and anguish, a day of physical ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. If you read the account of Jesus' crucifixion, that's a pretty accurate account. There was darkness over the face of the land. There was emotional loss of Jesus as He cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was the physical tearing of his body. There was the wrath of God poured upon him. You see, the way of hope is found through the cross, through Christ. You don't have to sit there like Harry Truman and go, well, I know it's coming, but I'm sticking right here. There's a way of escape, a way when the day comes that you can have hope. You can have 
deliverance. Do you trust Him? Do you seek Him? Seek Him. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Let's pray. Lord, we don't always find these verses, these messages palatable, enjoyable. And yet, Lord, it's your revelation of yourself. Lord, may we not hymn and haul, but may we bow before you, realizing that not only do you come in justice, but you also came through your Son, that you took this punishment upon yourself. May we live in the light of what he did for us. It's in, his son, in your Son's name we pray. Amen.